Niantic is the company behind Pokemon Go, an augmented reality game where users walk around in the real world and catch Pokemon, which appear on their screen. The idea for augmented reality has existed for a long time, but the technology to bring augmented reality to the mass market has appeared only recently. Improved mobile technology makes it possible for a smartphone to display rendered 3D images over a video stream without running out of battery. Pokemon Go was the first game to come out of Niantic, but there are other games on the way. Niantic is also working on the Niantic real-world platform, a planet-scale, quote, AR platform that will allow independent developers to build multiplayer augmented reality experiences that are as dynamic and entertaining as Pokemon Go. Paul Francis is an engineer at Niantic, and he joins the show to describe his experience building and launching Pokemon Go, as well as abstracting the technology from Pokemon Go and opening up the Niantic real-world platform to developers. A few updates from Software Engineering Daily Land. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. Find Collabs is the company that I'm building, and we're having an online hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. If you're working on a project or you're looking for other programmers to build a project or start a company with, check out Find Collabs. I've also been interviewing people from some of these projects on the Find Collabs podcast. So if you want to learn more about that community, you can hear it on that podcast. We have a new Software Daily app for iOS. It includes all 1,000 of our old episodes, as well as related links and greatest hits and topics. You can comment on episodes. You can have discussions with other members of the community. And you can become a paid subscriber for ad-free episodes at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. The Android app is coming soon. And if you use the iOS app, I would love to get your feedback on it. With that said, let's get on to today's show. Paul Francis, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Good to talk to you. We are talking about Niantic and augmented reality today. The idea for augmented reality has existed for a long time. We have our definitions for what we see as augmented reality. How would you define the term augmented reality? So that's a really good question, actually. So I think that people think of AR as this, you know, like you have your, you're placing a, a, a vase, a flower vase on a table, right? But we kind of like to go beyond that. So one thing that we would like to say is if I put a flower vase on the table that you would see the flower vase in the same spot with the same flower. And if I were to pick a flower out of that vase that you would see the flower get picked out of the vase. If you walk in front of the vase, I would not see the vase anymore. I mean, currently with most of this AR stuff, it doesn't include the background at all. But beyond that, let's get more interesting here. That flower is going to be, depending on the native plants in that area of the world where you currently are. And if it happens to be raining or it's, the wind is blowing, you'll see that effect on the actual device that you see. And AR doesn't have to be even a camera thing at all. Like our game Ingress that came out in 2012 doesn't actually have any in-camera AR, but it is an augmented reality app because the world that you see through the game is not the world that you see around you. It has 
things in it that are unique to the game, but that you have a different sense that sculpture in the park next to you suddenly becomes something that means something in the game as opposed to being just a sculpture. What are the limitations of AR today? You know, we have these great smartphones, we have these robust and uh, ever-improving cloud provider tools, but where are the limitations? What do we need in order to make AR a more widely accessible, broadly adopted reality? So first of all, you know, it'd be nice if there were glasses that people would actually wear, and I don't know how far that that is away, but I mean, you're not going to see people walking around with a HoloLens or a Magic Leap on their face, maybe in a small, those will work indoors perhaps, but we're looking for something that works across the whole world. I think that maybe people need to expand their idea of what AR is. For example, the in-camera kind of things, we don't want a whole game to be based on that just because then you, what you end up with is a bunch of people walking around holding their phones up all the time. And people, you know, first of all, look really strange doing that. And second of all, you don't really want to do that. You would like, you know, what we're trying to do is to decrease the amount of time people actually look at the screen and have the game be something that is more integrated into your life where maybe you're walking around and the phone, your phone notifies you that there's something interesting nearby that you should check out and maybe you'll be willing to pull your phone out for that purpose. But I don't know what it's going to take to to make this thing world sp- widespread. I mean, we've had pretty good success with Pokemon Go, as, as you're aware, and I think we're going to hopefully keep being successful like that. Today, most of the augmented reality applications that we see are games. There are some utility applications of augmented reality, when do you think we'll see more widespread utility applications or, or, or are we already seeing them? So, you know, our focus at Niantic is about the real world application. So we want to, you know, our mission at our company is to get people to go outside, to explore the world around them, to exercise and tend to be social with each other face to face. So that we're working on. I don't think that from, from Niantic perspective, we're not going to be doing you're in a factory and you put on the pair of glasses that help you to know what part you need to replace on the machine that's currently broken. I think that those things are starting to happen in the industry, but I'm not that plugged into it myself. So, you know, we've got these libraries like AR Kit and AR Core. Do these augmented reality libraries, do they do everything that you want as an augmented reality developer? Or are there some some things that the augmented reality tooling ecosystem for developers doesn't satisfy yet? Well, yeah. So the, the AirKit and AirCore are you know, both very similar. I mean, basically what they do is they give you a set, of, a set of planes, and then you can place anchors on those planes. The Apple system currently has some ability for two devices to share their view of the world. But one thing that it doesn't do is it's not cross-platform, right? So if I'm on an Android device and you're on an iPhone, you're not gonna be able to do any kind of sharing with that. Also, it doesn't have any real support for shared experiences. So we actually have a team here that is working on our own internal AR system. And we make use of AirKit and AirCore on the devices themselves, but then we go far beyond that. So we actually have the ability for multiple people to all share the same view of a set of AR things. 
and to interact with those things and in real time and to make sure that all the devices are in sync with each other. So if you go onto our uh, YouTube channel, there's a, a couple of videos there, one called Codename Neon, which is a multiple player game where you can see eight to 10 people, I believe, running around in a room, picking up blobs of energy off the ground and then shooting them at each other. And everybody can see that view of those things as they're happening in real time. And that's whether they're on an Android or an iOS device. Correct. Because, you know, our games, our software needs to work on both platforms. We don't want to exclude, you know, those are the majority mobile platforms right now, and we don't want to exclude anybody. So we want to make it work cross-platform. Is the round trip time to the server, you know, because in, in order to do that kind of synchronization, I assume you need to basically like go to the cloud, write something to the cloud, and then the other augmented reality user needs to read from the cloud. Is the latency low enough in that loop to have an experience that fulls, feels fully interactive? So I'll give you two parts to an answer to that question. First of all, the AR, the AR system that we've built has about a 10 millisecond latency round trip between the clients. We actually do some, we do hole punching through the, through the mobile network to be able to have the phones be able to talk to each other directly. And there's like a multicasting type of uh, protocol that the, that the devices can all communicate with each other. But this also leads to why we're so interested in 5G and that we have partnerships with Deutsche Telekom in Germany and EE in England right now. And we're helping launch their 5G because we're going to put servers in the edge so that the players on 5G can have like a one millisecond round trip latency. How does 5G improve the viability of AR applications? What does 5G actually mean in a meaningful sense to you? From our perspective, I mean, this, right, it's a higher performance network, but really what's important for us is not speed, but latency. And the way we get benefits from latency is the support for edge computing, which we've actually now demonstrated. We did a, this Codename Neon, which I mentioned previously, we actually did a demonstration at Mobile World Congress along with our partners there, um, Samsung, I believe, and Deutsche Telekom. So for us, I think these companies are starting are seeing us as being the example of this is what we can do with 5G because I think they've created this kind of awesome technology with this edge computing and don't really know what to do with it yet. And I think we've come along at a good time and can provide them with an application. Okay, you, you drew a distinction there between speed and latency. Can you distinguish those further? Sure, those, so, right, so if you're, I'm downloading a movie right? I'm, I'm watching Netflix. I don't care if it takes five seconds before the stream starts coming because I need the bandwidth for that, but it doesn't matter. I'm not interacting with the film. Uh, I mean, except for maybe pausing, but that can be handled locally with buffering, right? But I need a round trip, quick round trip, because if I'm, let's say I fire a bullet, an energy blob at another player, if that energy blob leaves my phone and it takes a half a second before you see it, I'll think that I fired at you, but you'll have moved out of the way before it actually goes and it ruins the illusion of reality. And so you don't necessarily or not necessarily transferring a lot of data in that situation. It's just really, hey, there's a blob coming. Here's the position of it. It's moving like this. And where is it currently? And so that we can both, both devices can render it in the same virtual location, but we're not transferring, like it's not, I'm sending you a, I'm not sending you a giant video file. Got it. You worked on Pokemon Go. 
Yes. What lessons of software engineering did you learn working on Pokemon Go? Oh, geez. Lessons of software engineering. I mean, it's 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 really just like any large project. We We had some issues with, I think when we started things out, that we built things in such a way that then we realized that we made some mistakes. So for example, in a game, you typically have a lot of different pieces of data that you need that all the different parts of different scenes and all that need to have access to. And we had this kind of monolithic thing. And it became pretty clear relatively quickly that that wasn't going to work, first of all, because all that stuff was loaded in memory at the same time. And we're on a you know limited memory device. And also, it made it so that when the game launched, it took a much longer time to load because you had to create all these objects. And so we quickly kind of went to a much more, we do something called game states. So when you're on the map, the things that you need to talk to the map are loaded into memory. When you add an encounter on top of that, we load the encounter state and those states will stack with each other. So that because the encounter, you're still essentially on the map. And so the map, the map state is the base, kind of the base state. And then the encounter state comes on that and you have access to those things. And then when you're done with the encounter, you know, I don't need a 3D Pokeball anymore. I don't need the scene of the forest that comes behind the, the you know, or the AR, the AR stuff that's loaded when you're playing, uh, doing an encounter in AR, and that stuff can be loaded out of the game. So it's a way of keeping the things more efficient. Wow. Okay. So you're saying the V1 of Pokemon Go, I download Pokemon Go, I open it up, all of the static assets for all the Pokemon are on my phone. V2, you say, okay, what Pokemon are in a three-mile radius? Let's just download the static assets for those Pokemon, and then as I walk to a different circumference, then I'll download static assets for a different set of Pokemon. Yeah, so that's something a little different, which I'll talk about in a minute. This is more like I need the AR camera object in memory only when I'm in encounter, but when I'm in the map, I don't need it. And so it's basically loading and allocating. So and then this is this was before the game actually launched. I mean, this happened this happened before we ever launched V1. It was just, you know, while we were in the process of developing a natural thing, let's just build this thing, let's make it work. Oh crap, it's taking up way too much memory. Let's try and come up with another way of doing it. As far as assets, so we don't download the 3D. So this is for 3D assets of the Pokemon. You have none of those on your device when the game is first um, installed. First of all, it would make the binary size much too large. And app stores have limits on how much they'll allow. Like, for example, downloading over Wi-Fi, I think Apple just raised it to 150 megabytes or something like that. And we'd like for people to be able to download over their cellular connection just because when we upgrade, it makes makes it smoother experience for people. And so we actually have an asset bundle system that when a certain Pokemon is nearby, we will then go and request from the server, hey, send me the asset for this thing. And those then are maintained on your device. And so first of all, it makes it so that you don't, somebody can't pull apart the pull apart the app on the phone and pull the pull the all the assets out and steal them. Although, I mean, once you've encountered everything, you have them all. And it just makes for a more efficient kind of experience. And the other thing is that as the game gets upgraded, we'll change assets. The new versions of Unity may have some change with the way the 3D models need to work. And so this whole thing is versioned. So it's like 
Android or iOS, and then which version of the game do you have, and which version of the asset, and it, so it knows when to download assets on in the background on the fly. So the first thing that you mentioned that I mis- misinterpreted was actually like I download the app, it gives me the things I need, but loading AR camera application, so like the application infrastructure that's sitting over my camera essentially and you know taking that imagery that's coming in and doing all the a- necessary AR magic on top of it i guess that is a memory intensive application is what you're saying so that library or that object takes up memory if, if the game is running and you have you know you have a gig of memory in your thing and let's say that thing takes up a certain amount of memory that's memory that's not available for other things and when i'm in the store or if i'm in the player profile or if i'm in the map itself, I don't need that. So we kind of load and unload those things from memory as they're needed by this thing we call game states. And so I'm in the state of the map. And so what do I need in the map? I need the load map tiles. I need to be able to see the world. I need to, you know, I need the gestures that let me turn around. I need the, you know, whatever things that are rendered on the screen. I don't know, like off the top of my head, all the things that are there, but there's, you know, there's an object that I can look at. When I when I go into an encounter, now I suddenly need other things to be loaded into memory. and But when I leave the encounter, those things need to go away because I don't want to... When I'm in the store, I don't want the stuff that I need for encounter to be loaded in memory at the same time. So eventually we're going to get to talking about the real-world platform, which is the, the Niantic planet-scale augmented reality platform for, for people who want to develop games on top of it. I'd like to understand to what extent was Pokemon Go something that was built on top of this abstract platform infrastructure, or was Pokemon Go more built specifically just for the Pokemon Go use case without the ideas around like going beyond Pokemon Go and having more abstract interfaces? Sure. So if you go back further in time, we have Ingress, which came out in 2012. We always had an idea that we would build a platform. Explain what Ingress is for people who okay, don't know. Okay, so Ingress is augmented reality game that we released in 2012. It has a much more science fiction-y kind of theme to it. And basically what you have is two, I'll go all deep for you. There's an alien presence called the Shapers that have been influencing humanity for thousands of years. And the Shapers have these things called portals, which are the place that they enter our dimension. And there's this stuff called exotic matter that leaks into humanity. And some people are sensitive to XM and it causes them to do things like create artworks and things like that. So all the public statues and sculptures and interesting architecture that you see is because of the influence of XM on humanity. Well, there's two teams in Ingress. There's the enlightened that believe that the shapers, the people, the the creatures that create this XM and have been influencing our humanity for thousands of years are here to help us. And the resistance who think that they don't think that this is a good idea and that humanity should be left alone to to their own devices. Anyway, so the the game turns out to be essentially a global game of capture the flag. You try and capture these portals for your team and then link them together into triangles to cover the surface of the earth with the triangles to influence that human population under those triangles for your for your side. Okay, so that's Ingress. Now take us through the evolution of Niantic's platform. Right, so we built Ingress. We always had in mind that we were going to build a platform, but 
Ingress was just kind of built as a game. And it turned out to be extremely useful in the sense that we learned what to do and what not to do. So when we were going to start doing Pokemon Go, we said, okay, let's take all the lessons learned and let's start building a plot, the, the real Niantic platform. So Pokemon Go is built on the Niantic real world platform, but you can think of it as being built on, you know, version 0.1. So th- over the course of the three years that we've been with Pokemon Go, we've learned a lot more things and we've been able to continue to grow the platform and you know that that's ongoing and so now we're getting to the point now we're getting to the point where we're going to start inviting third parties so actually harry potter wizards unite which is coming out sometime soon we're actually doing the server development and warner brothers is doing the client so that was kind of our first venture into having a second party player working we're also doing something called the beyond reality development contest and we've invited a bunch of teams to give us proposals, and we have selected some number of those teams to come and actually hand them a platform. So, you know, it's one thing to build something yourself, and the guy next to you is the guy that wrote the API, and it's a different thing to hand somebody a pile of documentation, expect them to be able to build something. And so that's a process, that a learning process that we're going through right now. Tell me a little bit about that. So you get these you know, these these kind of exemplar applications like Ingress and Pokemon Go, you learn a ton about how to build augmented reality applications. And then you say, now we're going to abstract this out and build a generalized AR platform. Tell me about that platform. What are the things that you want in every AR application that you can build into a platform? So I would change the word AR to real world. So what is it that we provide? So we have a single worldwide instance. And so what that means is that you're not going to be assigned to one server or the other. Whenever you pull your phone out, in this case, all the things are mobile games at the moment. Whenever you pull your phone out in the world, you're going to be in the same game world as everybody else. So we have built a system that can do that. An example of that is then in Ingress again, uh, Pokemon Go doesn't really have any kind of worldwide interaction, but in Ingress, we actually have players that have made these giant fields that I mentioned that have literally covered the entire Arctic Circle. And everybody who's playing the game can see that. And so we have the ability to do that in a way that everybody has the same view of the universe. We're incorporating things like all our points of interest that we've developed. So over the years, Ingress players have submitted interesting art, architecture, local businesses, things like that, that they have found interesting. And those things have been come incorporated to the game. So it's a giant crowdsourced database of the interesting points in the world. That is the basis for the portals in Ingress, the Pokestops and gyms in Pokemon Go. We also have things like climate data. So we know that, you know, where I'm sitting right now in San Francisco, it's wet, it's cold. In Arizona, it's hot, it's a desert. And those things will can be used to influence the what generates in the game. We have live weather data now incorporated into the platform. Obviously, you need maps. So we have, um, we're using open street maps, but we have, we provide those map tiles to you that you can then decorate to look however you want. You know, if you looked at Ingress and Pokemon Go, you'd see two vastly different views. And when Harry Potter comes out, you'll see it looks completely different. And then, like, even to the point of in our platform, we, we're the, I mentioned the health and fitness data. That health and fitness data is going to be a platform service as well. And so then the player's activity walking, 
how they move in their life can also be incorporated into the game. Amazing. So if I was to develop an augmented reality game on this platform, what's what kind of experience do I want? Like as the from the developer experience point of view. So you've I've already got these tools like AR Kit and AR Core. What kinds of APIs do you want to offer me? And like, do I need? Is this just a library I'm importing? Is it a cloud service? Like, what am I doing here? Sure. So there's client and server piece. Initially, you're going to get. You know, with the contest, we have kind of various versions of the client and server. So the initial version of what you'll end up getting is just a process that runs on your local machine, right? So it doesn't have any kind of cloud component to it. But you're essentially what you're doing is you're going to be building. A, we support Unity at the moment, so you'll be building a Unity app. We have a native plugin that plugs into that Unity app that provides things like your map tiles, the location information. Secure RPCs, so we, we do a lot of work to prevent prevent cheating, which I can't talk about, but there's a lot of stuff going on inside the native plugin that assures that you are who you say you are and that you're where you say you are um, to try and fight against the spoofers and, and such and provides other kind of services to the Unity side. That then communicates with the server and the server is, you know, you would then write code on the server. You know, I need to catch a Pokemon. I need to recycle something in my inventory, um, et cetera, et cetera. And those things become what we call game actions. And so you would then build those game actions on the server and the server would know how to talk to our back end that would be able to give you the spatial entities and other things like that. And I, I can't talk too much about how that works because that's pretty much our secret sauce. But yeah, so it's it's pretty you know standard client server kind of development, but we give you a bunch of the pieces, and you know we have our, our a special way of doing this stuff. And really, the key is if you built this naively, and I would say when we built Ingress, we did it naively. It will cost you a lot of money to run your server. With Pokemon Go, we were able to do this in such a way that it was very inexpensive to run, and so therefore we could actually make a profit because, as you probably know only a very small percentage of players actually pay money and we can't run a service unless we can pay for it. Brings up an interesting point. You know, thinking back to the the days of Pokemon Go when it was just spiking, it sounded like Niantic had some crazy firefighting stuff that was going on. I mean, it was a you know, not the worst application to have a firefighting, you know, thing to contend with because it's a game and you know, as important as it was, it's like you know, not the end of the world if if something goes down or if there's a you know if there's an outage. But tell me about the firefighting experience. Was it an all hands on deck kind of thing, or or was it uh, kind of a like let's just cool, let's just keep our cool and you know kind of not stay up too late with on call tickets? What was that on call experience like? So thankfully, I'm a client engineer. Although I did have some things that I needed to deal with on the client at the time. So remember that we spun off from Google in 2015. There were 35 people at the company. By the time the game Pokemon Go launched, I think we had about 20 engineers. We had four server engineers that were working on Pokemon Go. We did some projections. We did some planning. We looked at other MMOs. We thought about what we thought the traffic was going to be like. We did a five times over over provision from what we thought we would have. The game launched in Australia and New Zealand 
a few days before the U.S. I don't remember what day it was, but it launched in Australia and New Zealand first. We exceeded our worldwide traffic for the whole world in just Australia and New Zealand. It turns out that the real traffic was 50 times our worst case scenario. So we were going crazy. Thank God we had Google Cloud uh, to support us. They literally were moving other people out of the data center that we were in so that they could give us more space. We found all sorts of interesting problems, like example, I don't know if you knew this, but the Apache HTTP library has a bug in it. If you have more than 10,000 open connections, it stops working. That's not something that we could load test. So we were fixing things like that. We found all sorts of weird data store contentions and other kinds of things like that on the fly. And we were kind of like rewriting the server on the fly as we, as we went. And we had to also, we kind of naively launched with no geographic blocking. We just kind of like, okay, it's going to be available in Australia and New Zealand, but the whole world is actually populated. So we had so many people sideloading the app. So we were kind of like on the fly adding geographic blocking to the server to prevent those areas from being able to get into the game just to control the load. It was totally insane. I still have a little bit of like, one of our engineers, uh, our, our director of engineering gave a talk about the beginning of Pokemon Go just last week. And I was just kind of like, oh my gosh, I totally had forgotten about half of this stuff. But it was really surreal. I mean, you you flip on, so the day after the game launched, I flip on the TV in the morning before I go to work, and the Today Show is on, and Al Worker is catching Pokemon. And I'm like, oh my God. And so I changed the channel to CNBC, and John Fort is interviewing the CEO of Microsoft and the CEO of GE. And he, like, within 10 seconds of me turning the channel, he was like, so what do you guys think about this Pokemon Go? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what have we done? and went into the office. And you know, several days later, there was this giant, um, somebody on Facebook had organized a giant pokey crawl here in San Francisco. And the servers went down that afternoon before this thing started. And we managed to get the whole thing back up like 15 minutes before the thing was supposed to start. And we were just down the street from where the starting point of this thing was. And so we were kind of worried that we would, the giant crowds of thousands and thousands of people were gonna storm the office if, uh, if we didn't get things going again. So it was pretty stressful. Yeah, I mean, it's an added degree of hilarity. I, Pokemon, it continues to surprise me with its perennial reemergence as a cult phenomenon. Like, I, I played Pokemon cards back in, uh, like, elementary school, and it was my on-ramp to playing Magic, and, it you know, learning about a ton of new stuff from there, so I will be forever grateful for Pokemon. What do you think... I mean, you sound like you're a games player yourself what is it about the pokemon and this is totally unrelated to software engineering what is it about the pokemon brand and the pokemon game space that is so compelling i you know i don't really know because i'm i'm actually a little too old for pokemon but if you think about you're never too old for pokemon <laughs> that's like saying i'm too old for pixar yeah anyway well I'm, I'm a level 40 player now so but the thing about it is that if you think about it, so many people had such nostalgia for it. And there's so, there's a lot of depth to it. I mean, all the different types and the this guy is good at that. And the history, if you read about the different creatures and what their history is and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of compelling. But then if you think about the nature of what Pokemon was and is, it was all about someone exploring the world and searching for these creatures. So when we talked to the Pokemon company about doing this, it was just a totally natural fit with now we actually will have Pokemon actually in the world. 
But the beauty of it, so there's a couple of things about this. One, because people are outside doing it, it's not like a normal video game, right? A normal video game, you're in your living room, nobody sees you playing. With Pokemon Go, you see 100 people standing around outside looking at their phones, you walk up to them. What are you people doing? Oh, we're playing, we're catching Pokemon. <gasps> and then and then because of the single world instance, right? If I saw a rare Pokemon on my phone, everybody else saw the same rare Pokemon in the same place and was able to catch it. And so you had this kind of social phenomenon. Another thing that I think that I'm happy for Nyan to take, take credit for, but going outside, walking around, getting exercise, fresh air, sunshine, is something that makes people feel good. But people don't necessarily realize that, but then they're playing our game and all those feelings of being outside and all that stuff, they get those, but then they give us the credit for it. That's a great point. I love the the positive spin on on the exercise side of things. Coming back to the engineering, by the way, if that engineer, wh- whoever gave a talk about the early days of Pokemon Go, if they, if they can have an, uh, an outstanding invitation to come on Software Engineering Daily and tell those stories, I'd love to hear those. I think that, I think that talk was considered highly, comp- highly company confidential, so... Totally understand. I'm sure there will be some day where the uh, you know it is it is declassified and uh, that he could see he or she can come on then. So you what you said about thank God for Google Cloud wasn't Google Cloud also saying thank God for Pokemon Go because this was like the stress test for Kubernetes, right? Yeah, I think we were the largest Kubernetes cluster in the world for a while. In fact, they had to it only supported the number of like it didn't support enough instances, and I, at some point that we we got an upgraded version that supported more more instances because we needed to be we needed oh, it to God. be larger yeah um we're not i mean obviously we're we're you know we're below that peak at this point but yeah well anyway i think i think it was a i i heard some some interesting uh stories about that at the time oh yeah the google people I, my, my friends at google were like oh my gosh you were at the google does this meeting every week internally called tgif and they were all like oh my god you guys were at the topic of tgif this week <laughs> Okay, so getting back to the re- this real world platform, you know, you sure. you laid out a whole lot of detail in this in this real world platform. You talked about infrastructure for doing fitness tracking and detecting cheating, and I think you said your secret sauce was kind of like, if I remember correctly, kind of like the the like the rendering of objects in the world and like do- doing the occlusion stuff. Well, that's I right? mean that's was, part was, of it, right? So the the real secret is to be able to do the the single system view of the world and do it inexpensively. What does that mean? Single system view. Of so the in world. other words, that every every player in our game. So we don't have separate servers, right? If you play World of Warcraft, like you know, you and I, if we want to play together, we have to say which server we want to be on. With our games, it's everybody's in the same same view of the world. Ah, right. So you need to like maintain a consistent experience, and it needs to be highly responsive. That's cool. I mean, this sounds like something that's kind of like the spanner, or I don't know how much you you go into like the back end side of things because you said you're a client developer. But I remember like the spanner project from Google is kind of trying to to solve that the database. Yeah. So we actually do use both the cloud data store and Spanner in, in, in the, our back end, but we have a layer of our own on top of that that enables us to do this. Because Spanner has some, probably has some, a little bit too much latency. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I'm not going to, I don't want to go into... <laughs> All right, fair, fair, fair enough, fair uh, enough. Fair I, enough. I, I, I like working here. But yeah, no, fair enough. But I mean, just talking abstractly, like the problem of global replication at low latency, that's a deep engineering problem and sounds very sounds very interesting. Sounds like a worthwhile note. So 
Well, and the key and the key is to do it cheaply, right? So, so if you if it costs you, you know, if it costs you more than you can collect in fees from your players, then you don't exist anymore, right? Right. What an interesting engineering problem. That is a serious backend engineering problem, an edge computing engineering problem. How much of so you said okay, you said the edge infrastructure. That's that's part of the what makes five G appealing to you. Okay, well, I won't. I don't want to drill down into that. I don't want to get you fired. You did talk about the Niantic server a little bit. So I think you said the the Niantic server is written in Java. The client is in Unity C Sharp. Can you tell me more about these these language choices and what they bring you? Yeah. So I mean, I'm not sure that it was really thought through that much. I think that our server engineers, the initial server engineers, had been using Java for a long time and were comfortable in it. I mean, okay. So the Google Cloud stuff APIs are Java based, I and mean, but you could have used Scala or something else, I suppose. And you know, Java just has such a vast library of of things that if you need to use for whatever purpose you have, that's always there. I don't I don't know if it, how much far beyond that it went. And as far as C Sharp and Unity, well, Unity is the most popular game engine, and so if we're going to use Unity, I think we could use JavaScript or C Sharp, and I don't think we're going to use JavaScript. People who have not developed in the game world don't really understand how Unity fits into this stack because they're thinking, okay, all right, you're on iOS, you're on Android, so that means you're like doing Android Java development and uh, iOS Objective C or Swift, right? But it's no, it's 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 Unity. Can can you help bridge that sure. uh, so, lack of understanding? So right, Unity. Right, so there's these things called game engines, right? So Unity and Unreal are like two of the most common ones, but there's a bunch of other ones out there. And what that does is it provides, essentially provides a set of libraries that make game development easier. So like 3D, 3D just rendering of 3D models and shaders and, and things like that. And then like collision detection and a consistent 30 frame per second clock that you get and the ability to do things in frame, you know, games are generally written as in you render a frame and then you figure out what you need to do next in the next 16 milliseconds and you render the next frame. And so you're in that mode of just trying to do something relatively quickly and all the things that you need to do. And Unity provides that framework for you. And also they take your C-sharp code and then compile it down for you into an Android APK and an IPA for iOS through various you know methods. Uh, in the in the case of, they actually have something called IL2CPP that takes the uh, takes the C sharp bytecode and converts it into C and then they can compile that for the each platform. Um, so it's just basically like a vast library of stuff that you need to do to build games. You know, game UI and 3D rendering and modeling and all this other kind of stuff that you need to do. And you know, like stuff like okay, the artist works in Maya and they build some sort of 3D model of something and you need to import that into the game. Unity knows how to do that and coordinating and syncing things and all that kind of stuff. But we actually do have a substantial amount of native code in addition to Unity. So like my product, so. I'm the tech lead on something called Adventure Sync, which is the health kit and Google Fit integration into the game. So you could actually think of that as being like a totally separate app that lives inside the game. And that thing is written in partly in native Objective-C and um, in our case, Kotlin um, for Android, but then has a core of C++ code that knows how to do the logic. And that 
happens to run in the background so that while you're walking around, even if you don't have the game open, it will periodically wake up, sample the fitness data on your phone, send an RPC to the server. And so then you would get notifications later which say, oh, you hatched an egg or your buddy found a candy, which would hopefully, you know, from our perspective, get you to pull the pull the phone out and open the game. But also people enjoy it because they get credit for their activity, even when they're not staring at the screen. And so that code is written as a native way and is integrated into the the game. So we have kind of like stuff going on at, at multiple levels. How much friction is there in building a resource intensive app that is cross platform? Because like I, I you know I've written mobile applications before that are meant to be cross platform and it is just it is just a nightmare even for like a regular CRUD application and mm-hmm. from what I hear, even if you're doing React Native but if you're doing something like Pokemon Go, where you've got really intense resource requirements, is it just layers and layers of, of difficulty? Or can can you architect the team structure to make this a little bit more feasible and, and, and not, not so difficult? Yeah, so a lot of the developers don't really ever touch the native code, right? So they're working in Unity. And Unity does a pretty good job of generating something that will perform on the both platforms. The difficulty comes in, so remember I mentioned our native plugin that provides the security and RPC and all that kind of stuff. That now has parts that are written cross-platform and then native code that's written for both environments. And so you have to imagine that we have the building of that is fairly complicated. You have to like pull in the, like in the case, of, and AdventureSync is the same thing where there's this native, there's this native C++ core, but then there's like, oh, here's the Objective-C parts Here's the Kotlin parts. So the Objective-C parts, the integration between C++ and Objective-C is relatively straightforward. But for the Kotlin parts, now I have to go into JNI. I'm going to have to build like an interface. Okay, I have to decide I'm getting, I'm getting health samples from both platforms. Those health samples look vastly different. So now I have to take those things. I have to convert them into some common format that the, the C++ code can ingest. And then I have to control separately how does this thing launch? How does it know when to stop? What does it mean to be done? What does it mean for for the app to be launched in the background? Android services versus iOS background execution, all this kind of stuff. So it turns into being a pretty complicated problem. I feel like I've done a pretty good job with it because our server side folks, when I gave a talk about this architecture for this thing, they said, huh, I thought this was a simple service. I said, it's a simple service because you get two RPCs. It's not a simple service of all the stuff I have to do to make it work. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about the real world platform. Sure. We really just glossed over it. I'd like to just revisit it and tell me again the what you're trying to offer on a high level and, and what kinds of game development opportunities you see that like what kinds of games would you like to see if you could you know name the games that you would really like to see people build okay so i on have on your ar yeah yeah so i have a personal favorite and that i've kind of pitched internally a little bit and i don't know if if it's ever going to happen so if you think about ingress we use only the poi there's a map but we don't use anything on the map there's just the point of, points of interest pokemon go we use climate and weather and all this kind of stuff but the roads nobody use we don't use the roads for anything and i really want to build a tower defense game that is in the real world. 
And so you walk around and you place your towers down and then you launch the attack against the other the other members of the, the other players. And they use the road network as the way for these creatures to or whatever they are, robots, creatures, tanks, whatever it is to move around the world. And I would love that game. And I don't know if we're going to build that. And I would love to see somebody try that. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the what the teams that we have. We have several teams that are selected. I think the contest is starting pretty soon. But I don't know exactly what they're working on. But if, if somebody's building that game, I would love to have it. What are the parameters of the contest? We requested input, right? So people got to make a proposal for what they were going to do. And then from that list of people, we selected some number. I think we're trying to go beyond just games, right? So it's going to be, we're trying to select a variety of different types of so, know, so these are these are like external people that are totally throwing external, ideas right, at totally you? Totally external people that gave a proposal and we have some funding and then there's prizes at the end, like a million dollar, million dollar prize. Okay. Yeah. Okay, very cool. So with the the tower defense example, walk me through what I would get out of the out of the Niantic platform. If I wanted to build yes. that, what would my workflow be? Right. So you would you would get a map. You would know we would tell you this is a road, this is a this is a park, this is a whatever on the client, but on the server you would also maybe have that information as well. And you would have to build some sort of graph, right? So that, that would be up to you to figure out how to do that. <laughs> Given the map tiles that you get, you would have to be able to kind of analyze it and figure out where the roads were so that on the server, right? Because the, the server is going to be responsible for creating the, generating the creatures or whatever it is. Like you, I would, I place a defense tower at a certain spot in the game and that sends an RPC to the server. And they, one of these game actions that you build that says place this, you know, look in my inventory, place this thing at this location and then activate it. And then something else in the back end would say, oh, yeah, there's this creature moving along in this path. And you would have to some action that would cause it to fire at the thing or whatever. And then that, you know, there would be more game actions. You know, so basically what you're doing is you're building your game on your client. You're deciding a set of we use Google RPC and protocol buffers. So you essentially define your protocol in the protocol buffers and say, here's the list of things I need to do to make this game work as far as these 25, 30, whatever game actions that you build. On the server, you have to build those actions. On the client, um, you're going to you know, send RPCs and, respond and, and consume the results you get back and render that stuff on the screen so the player can see it. And then there's probably going to be in this, something like this tower defense, there'll probably be some sort of data flow thing that needs to run to update the position of all the stuff and all that kind of thing. And so that would be supported on the platform as well. You'd be able to have, you have some things that are real time and other things that you can kind of do in the background on the server. So as, as we begin to wrap up, I guess I'd love to know just a few more kind of deep engineering problems that, that you've encountered or, or curiosities, you know, I guess more specifically, what is a deep engineering problem that you've had to, to solve recently? I, I just want to better understand what are the challenges in augmented reality development? Right. So, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of the stuff that we've been doing, this is not me personally, but as a company, our AR team has been doing a really good job of taking basically what the two platforms give us as far as ARKit and AR Core and turning that into something that's a shared experience and that has low latency. And I know they've been working really hard on that. This is basically a company that we acquired a few years ago. And um, I think the team has grown since then, but that's, I would say, a very hard problem that they've had to solve. And I don't have a lot of insight into it because it's not what I do, but that's a big deal for us. We have another team that's working on the occlusion types of things, and that's a big machine learning problem where 
Um, we're trying to be able to do occlusion, but only with a single camera. Also a very challenging problem involving, I think when you move, if, as you move through the world, you can you know, maybe stitch, these, stitch together the images that you see in such a way that you can kind of develop that 3D model on the fly. And we have a demonstration video. I mentioned the codename Neon demo, and there's a demo of that as well on our YouTube channel if you're interested in taking a look. Personally, I've been doing all this background stuff and so my challenges have been both just dealing with the vagaries of the various platforms. And as you know, there's documentation and there's how things actually work. And so a lot of it has been, huh, I didn't expect it to work like that. And so then we have to spend a lot of effort to fix that. I, I quick example from just this week, we're doing some, because our on Android, we have multiple processes running the, the services that we have for doing background things, running a, running a separate process. And... We're using so we use a content provider to do um, shared preferences between the because if you use a regular shared preferences it doesn't work across across processes, but it turns out the way the content providers are implemented, they actually the data actually survives app reinstall, and so I had a flag that said this thing was initialized, that I, but the thing I'm working on now was initialized. I deleted the app and reinstalled it. And instead of instead of initializing, it thought it was already initialized, and so it didn't initialize. And so you just have weird things like that that I don't know that that's documented anywhere, but you discover things like that as you're going. Final question. Sure. We have this term mixed reality that I think suggests that augmented reality and virtual reality are on this gradient, and that there will be these some applications where they're going to merge, like maybe you have AR for part of the application, and then you enter a VR world. How do you feel about this mixed reality stuff and, and virtual reality more broadly? So I'm personally not a huge fan of VR. I mean, I think it's kind of cool in sort of limited situations. I mean, like they have this, uh, I've seen this thing where you can become like a Terminator and play with your friends and that seems really fun. I think from a, from a, from Niantic's perspective, we want to get people out of their, out of the living room and go outside. So it's not really going to work. I mean, you can't really work around. I don't I don't know where the term mixed reality comes from. It seems like that's a thing that Microsoft talks about a lot. Augmented reality, mixed reality, to me, seem like the same thing. But yeah, I think that you're going to see, like we currently, if you think about our progression as a company, right? So Ingress didn't really have any kind of camera-based AR. Pokemon Go right now is pretty limited. Uh, there's the Go Snapshot thing that we just did and the AR encounter things that we've had. There's more coming there. I think when Harry Potter comes out, you'll see that we've gone a little further. And then as more products come out, you're going to see us heading more and more where there'll be more AR stuff. But we have to keep that kind of thing relatively small just because on the fact that we're on a mobile phone means that we don't want to make it so that people have to hold their phone up all the time, right? So you have to kind of like curate when you do AR stuff in such a way that it's enjoyable for somebody, but it doesn't make it so that they have to have to be doing that the whole time they're playing the game or else you're going to lose lose a lot of people, at least in my opinion. Well, I remember seeing Sergey Brin talk, I think at TED, a long time ago, just making the same argument, like, we should not be craning our necks downward looking at our phones all the time. We should be out in the wild. Computing should be ambient and you know it should be harmonious with our our roots that make us want to spend time outside and exercise 
And, you know, it's nice to see that embodied in, in Niantic. So, Paul, I, I look forward to seeing the continued developments of Niantic, and thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. Wow.